Upstream with Jim and John, father and son conversations about discipleship and culture in the Pacific Northwest. I'm John. And I'm Jim. And today we're going to talk about four ethical uh, playgrounds <laughs> of the COVID crisis. <laughs> sure. Um, these, are, these are ethical tensions that all of us feel in the COVID crisis, plus one governmental philosophy question. So, sounds a little heady, but it's going to be really practical, I promise. And mm-hmm. I think you're going to enjoy it. Yeah, just five, five uh, uh, dilemmas, four dilemmas, one query of uh, <laughs> that everyone's been dealing with. It. And by the way, welcome to episode 53, 53, episode number one of year two. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we're really excited to be here. We're going to introduce a new segment to our show today, and we're going to keep bringing innovations throughout the year. We are excited with a new fresh wind in our sails for the next year. And we are very, uh, we are very uh, flexible. If you don't like the new segment, please tell us. We will. Oh, yeah. uh, we can do. We're we can pliable. Change. We'll we're, change for you. We'll change just yeah. for you. <laughs> <laughs> but first, we still are keeping story time around. So it is your turn this week for story and/or joke time. Yeah. So I thought I would tell an air traffic control story. I do have a bucket of those from my three and a half years as an air traffic controller. And uh, this one, I was working um, approach control at El Paso International Airport, mm. and um, I had um, we had a place in uh, El Paso just outside of town where a road went up over the mountains, and consequently, okay. if semis were on that road, for a couple of sweeps, you would get a blip there, just kind of a dot on your radar. If it's an airplane, it usually had data attached to it. It would tell you how fast and the altitude of that aircraft, okay. if, it, unless the aircraft had what's called a transponder turned off. But they're not supposed to. That's law in, in that airspace. Sure. But uh, you're supposed to issue traffic on anything you see uh, and so that somebody knows, hey, there's something there. And so uh, a lot of guys would not issue traffic in that particular spot because it was very common for a semi to go over the hill right there and give and people this, think it was a yeah. It would give you this fake reading for two or three sweeps of your radar. So I'm working and uh, a little bit busy, and I've got a Southwest Airlines coming in, and uh, that blip happens right there. But I'm playing by the book, so I said uh, traffic's twelve o'clock, uh, ten miles, type an altitude unknown. That means I'm telling him ten miles in front of you there is a piece of traffic. I don't know how high it is. I don't know what it is but it's there. And uh, he's getting closer and it didn't go away. So I said again, Southwest traffic is 12, mi- uh, 12 o'clock and one mile type an altitude unknown. Whoa. Then the dots merge and the Southwest pilot starts yelling at me and using profanity, which is against federal <laughs> regulations. And he says, are you talking to that SOB in the bonanza? And I said, negative. He said, we were so close, I looked him in the eye. That's how close Whoa. those two planes got. He saw the pilot, looked him right in the eye, and he said, you track him, I want his ass. That's the way, that was the quote. <laughs> and uh, so I, I, affirmative, you know, so I'm tracking this dot, and it went right back behind the mountains where we couldn't get radar coverage and disappeared. It was probably 
A bonanza. Is that a private private plane? Uh, yeah, it's a little single prop, very fast uh, airplane. Uh, there was a V-tailed Bonanza that, that we had dubbed in air traffic control as the V-tailed doctor killer. Whoa. Because a Bonanza is a very expensive private little plane to buy, so usually only doctors and lawyers could afford them. Sure. But they're also so busy, they don't fly very often, so they don't stay proficient, and they go out and kill themselves in one. So, Oh, man. Uh, so this was a Bonanza, um, and probably uh, dumping drugs you know, somewhere on a path. So I couldn't find him, and, and so that's how it ended. But mean, immediately when this happens, this in air traffic control, if you, if you lose minimum separation between two aircraft, it's mm-hmm. called a deal. You just had a deal. And that's the official term? That's the official term. You had a deal. And if you have a deal, they pull you off position, you go pee in a cup for a drug test, and then you go into a room with all the supervisors where they can replay everything that just occurred because everything that happens in there is recorded. For sure. So they put me in a room uh, with three supervisors. I'm terrified. And I have to go pee in a cup for a drug test. Then I go into this room, and they can make the radar the radar in that room replicate what just happened. They replay the audio. And, you know, fortunately, I didn't think that was a semi, or I didn't I didn't just give it. Yeah, you that. reported to the guy what it, yeah. that, there was, that it was there. So they said, hey, um, good job. Get back to work. And that was the end of that. Nice. Yeah. And was there no re- way to, like, if you had known it was an aircraft, could you have reached the Bonanza? Well, I could blind broadcast, or I could just say over the airwaves, Bonanza, uh, aircraft at this location, if you can hear me, please, it's called squawk. That means mm. to turn on your transponder. And you'd say squawk and ident, and he would turn on his transponder and then hit a button called ident, and it would make that signal flash. So I could have asked him to squawk and ident, but it never occurred to me that it was actually an airplane. Sure. That's very scary. Yeah. I guess it's a reason those guys get paid big money. Yeah. And it's a fun job. Uh, it's it's uh, 90% video gaming and 10% sheer terror. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a hoot. I don't know. I didn't. I was When you first said that you were only there three and a, three and a half. Yeah. And I just said only. But when you first said that, I was like, that's not very long. And then I think about it. It's like, that's. It's not. It's, very long it's not at all. a career, but it's longer than. It's yeah. not nothing, you know. Well, and I just felt like I was supposed to go back in ministry. It's one of those things that um, one of those times where your mom and I had uh, a lengthy debate uh, mm. discussion. We didn't. Debate. Yeah, sure. One um, of the many, many discussions. <laughs> well, I was really dying to get back into pastoral ministry, and her deal was, "Hey, it's mandatory retirement at the age of fifty-two." Um, at that time, my retirement plan with the feds, I would have retired at 52 with a lump sum retirement of $1.8 million. Holy smokes. And she said, just get to 50. 52, you yeah, said? Yeah, yeah. So she said, just get to 52, and then we can be self-funded pastors, church planters, missionaries, whatever we want to do. And how old were you at I that was, time? I was uh, 29 or 30. I was 30. So just do this for 20 more years. Well, now that I'm 58, see, that six years ago, I would have retired with a big chunk of money and started planting churches or something. Uh, but mm. she quickly came to my side of the argument. You know, once once we made the decision, you don't waste time looking back. Yeah, once you you flashed those those pretty eyes at her and made a pouty face. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, it was, just, it was just deep conviction from the Lord. I do think, too, that... Um, uh, Right now, she would not go back and say, I wish we had done it different. Oh, sure, yeah. sure. 
I uh, sometimes when I'm watching a show or something, and I'll see a character uh, do something, I'm like, well, I, w- I wouldn't do that. I would, I would say it different than that or something like that. And I think, um, and and normally these, you know, they're movies. So they're guys in like like the military or like leadership positions in like the police or something like that. And uh, and I realized uh, one day I realized, well, I would never be in that position because I'm not that guy. Guys like me don't end up as the chief of police. They don't end up in the Navy SEALs. They they end up on podcasts. You know, right, it's it's right. guys like me aren't aren't that guy. Yeah. And I think the same way about air traffic. I think that's nice, but no, I'm not. I'm, that's not for me. It is a really really fun job. I still, when I'm driving down the road, I'll look up at airplanes and start giving them instructions so I don't lose the phraseology and. Sure. It's just really fun. Pilots as a group are really fun to work with. Air traffic controllers are a fun group. Um, you know, but it, 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 it was great. I'm glad. Yeah. All right. So let's dive in, John. We're going to talk about uh, four kind of ethical arenas of conversation that COVID has brought to the front. And then one philosophy of governance. I think one of the things that's interesting to me, particularly for young people, as this is father and son conversations. Of course. Um, I've had young people in the past uh, say the last two presidential elections. So over the last five, six, seven years, wherever it's been, seven years now since the last two elections. And I've had young adults say, I'm going to vote for this person. And I go, oh, okay. Well, how do you feel about this issue? And I, and I present the issue and they'll mm-hmm. pose a, they'll, they'll, they'll uh, express a position that's different than the candidate they just said they're going to vote for. And so I'll point out what that candidate's position on that subject is. And then I'll say, what do you think about this issue? And I frame it up and they'll go, I think this way. Oh, well, that happens to be opposite of the person you just said you're going to vote for. Sure. And have like three of those and then go, who do you think you're going to vote for now? I'm still going to vote for that person. Why? I think they're really cool. You know, I I like them. Yeah. And um, so I do think there is a shortage of political thinking, critical thinking. I don't care about politics, but I'm talking about government ideals. So let's dive in. Uh, you know, question number one, you saw a headline or something that made you think of this question. So word it the most harsh way you saw it. I, I think that was a fascinating way to, to address well, the question. I, I can't take credit for it because the article actually, you know, they got to get their clicks. Sure, they sure. worded it the harshest way you could. It said, sure. um, it said, should older Americans die to save the economy? There you go. Now, see, yeah. I like that. So there's mm-hmm. ethical question number one. Should older Americans die to save the economy? Yeah. Um, what's your first blush stab at this question, John? So uh, to me, this is the this is the same equation. This is and it's it's you know it's coronavirus. So everything's blowing up like crazy. But this is the same equation in a lot of stuff. And uh, for me, it's 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 convenience versus danger or or death. So like for cars, okay, um, people die driving cars every single day. Lots and lots of people. Less and less every year. I think less and mm-hmm. less in general, trending less. Yeah. Uh, but many, many people. And yes. the convenience of having a car and the distance you can cover outweighs the death. Just plain and simple. That's as simple as it is. Well, and not only that, you could still operate vehicles safer than we currently do. If you reduce mm-hmm. the speed limit from 75 or 70 on the highway to 40, you sure. would plummet the death count. You would also save fossil fuels. You would create mm-hmm. less pollution. And yet we have determined that the efficiency to get somewhere faster is it outweighs the the savings of lives and fuel that a slower speed limit would allow. These are documentable facts, by the way. This is. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and in the 
there was a string of um, uh, terrorist incidents, especially in Europe, where people were using cars because mm-hmm. uh, they don't have easier access to guns. And um, and we just saw uh, today, actually, in, in Canada, they banned um, uh, just a long list of assault weapons after a, a terrible shooting they had uh, a few weeks ago, a very reactionary bill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you don't see these reactionary bills with, with automobiles. They don't change how hard it is to get a license, how hard it is to get a car, because right. the convenience is there. Right. And with the guns, the convenience isn't there for most people who think the way they do about guns. They don't have one. They're not concerned about it. They're not concerned about your ability to hunt or your right. whatever. Yeah. Right. So their equation looks different. So this to me is the same exact equation. How convenient is is our flourishing economy versus how many people would die? Um, and in this one... Uh, the numbers are more elevated. What do you What do you think about that? That's basically how I look at it. Yeah, I think it's the risk reward and mm-hmm. uh, the cost. Maybe the cost reward. And so what we're saying right now economically is the cost is extremely high. We hit thirty million unemployment uh, just recently, mm-hmm. and uh, so there's a massive economic downturn. The stock market it has rebounded a little bit. It lost uh, twenty two or twenty five percent of its value, something like that. So. Um, there's been a big, significant cost. Some businesses are closing and will never open again. It's not been small at all. So then you factor in um, one household or one income households or single parent homes, which make up uh, about 60% of our homes now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have um, childcare harder to get. How does a person make it? And then they're on unemployment, which is only 60% of your wage. So there's a massive economic impact plus the government's just printing more money for us all and giving it away which is going to add the tax burden to the future Uh and so increasing national debt so there's a massive economic uh impact here and the question would be how do you know at what line the death toll is sufficient to create that kind of chaos Mm -hmm. the new york governor cuomo had said you know if i do all this and save only one life it's worth it all to which everybody cries, foul, that's not true. Yeah, it's not if true. that was true, we would stop driving cars. If that was true, you know, there's a whole bunch of things we'd stop doing. Yeah. Um, and we've determined that the risk is uh, sufficient for the reward gained. And one thing, um, the X factor in this analogy is that uh, I think there's an inherent um, ageism in the in the argument uh, where if this were, say, this disease affected only children uh, hmm. under the age of like 14, right. this wouldn't even be a conversation. No one would say, let our kids die for the economy. You really uh, believe that? I, no one. No one would say that. Uh, that's no a fascinating one. twist. I hadn't thought of this question, John. So that's a fascinating mm-hmm. concept. You're saying that because these people have already lived long lives, mm-hmm. that people are comfortable with this equation, whereas if it was infants and children, they would say, well, of course, you've got to protect them. Exactly. Exactly. That's really well because the kids may not be able to protect themselves, whereas the vulnerable senior citizens could protect themselves. That's true. They have more autonomy, so they have some autonomy, uh, and so there's a factor there. Yeah, and um, and really, I guess you could say it's a good thing that the government is not heartless enough to say that they're okay <laughs> to make that decision to to throw uh, older Americans just to whatever they will or will not do. Well, and there's a there's an argument: Are these deaths inevitable? And what you and I are saying, we're comforting ourselves by saying, well, senior adults have autonomy and many of them can protect themselves, but the ones in nursing homes can't. And so there are a lot who cannot protect themselves. Um, So, yeah. So, so my question to you, John, I'll put you on the, on the pickle. Uh, 
how what death rate would cause you to say now it's worth the economic impact right now let's say for the sake of argument this is my personal belief that the death rate is somewhere between 0.5 and 0.8 percent so let's even call it one percent one percent of the infected will die is that sufficient for the economic um, impact we are currently experiencing and if it's not what percent would be um well I wish I had the numbers in front of me. Uh, I don't. So I would say for consistency's sake, if it was um, at or around the mortality rate of the flu, uh, then that might be, that might sound good just because it's what we've done. The flu's never shut us down like this. But then uh, I know uh, um, flu deaths in America for like a six month period range from, you know, 20 something thousand to 60,000. People right. don't always diagnose flu deaths. And so it's the, really hard to ping and, down. And that death rate for flu is. Uh, two and a half to three percent however mm-hmm. we have vaccines for those flus we don't have a vaccine for this one so uh, the you know, assumption is your infection rate would be exponentially higher so while it's a lower percentage of mortality it is a higher percentage of infection and therefore sure. it kind of skews the numbers but well and the- and the the tangible evidence that we see so let, not not statistics but you see um the overburdening of hospitals in Italy and, and New York now is just like a supposedly a war zone looking, just looking now, around at it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so say even say the economy in New York was never tampered with, say, say they'd made no executive orders. They're already, they're still in the toilet. There's nothing you could do to fix that. With okay. Hamlet, with now the, that's, the that's there. bleeding into ethical conversation number two. So let's transition to that, but to, to sure. close this one up, oh, I yeah, think, please. I think it is, uh, we're not saying we have answers to these ethical dilemmas. We're just saying what the four ethical dilemmas are. And the first one is if a single life is not worth an economic impact, you do have to reach a decision how many lives are worth economic disruption. And uh, our point with these four ethical dilemmas is that the government is the one deciding where the lines are on these ethical conversations. Yeah. They, and they, I, I, yeah. Sorry, I I definitely lean more towards the um the non pragmatic pragmatic end of this thing where I would say, um, well, I would probably be more comfortable with a small number of mortality affecting the economy to this scale than than some people maybe I don't know, but because I I don't even have firm numbers, it'd be hard to say. Well, you um, you have uh, our government making decisions about sending soldiers into battles. We know we're going to lose X percentage of our soldiers in this battle, but it's, this battle must be fought. And so we constantly and continually make decisions that cost people's lives and that do produce. You cannot live in a fallen, broken world without collateral death. So um, that's, so the, the, the point is we can't escape that people are going to die with the decision. And, um, and the economic impact is going to last for decades. Yeah. Okay. Well, what's number two? Well, number two is the the ethical balance between economic health and public health. So this is a tangent off the first one, which you started to take there, uh, rightfully so. Um, And that is medical facility impact. So the two arguments about shutting down, uh, stay home, stay safe, shelter in place, don't go to work, close these businesses, has not only been the death rate, it's also been the capacity of the medical system to treat and care for patients. Right. So even though only 1% will die for the sake of argument, uh, 17%, they say, I think it's more like nine, but let's say 10%. 
10% of the people who get this infection are going to require serious, they're going to require medical attention. So uh, the second argument is uh, economic health versus public health. On this very day that we're recording, Governor Inslee just had a press conference. And so uh, to let you know, for the sake of uh, rapid change, today is May 1st that we're making this recording. And uh, today, Governor Inslee had a press conference where he's laid out the four-phase plan of reopening Washington based on science and data, he says. But he made the statement that public health and economic health are interconnected and cannot be separated. What do you think of that statement? Um, I think you can separate them uh, to, to an extent. Yeah, This is uh, the most dramatic um, health crisis that has happened in you know, a hundred years. Um, so it's, uh, it's fair for him to say that in this, in this instance, for sure. And you think about, uh, the way, um, a clogged medical system affects everything else, you know, uh, um, blood donations were a huge deal. The evergreen hosted a blood drive because, um, you know, people are still having car crashes and people are still, you know, cutting themselves in their kitchen. You know, there's, there's still accidents going on. So, right, right. uh, a clogged, uh, uh, Hospital does affect more than just those infected with the the virus. But see, here's the here's the tension of this: we're creating significant economic impact, while public health, except in cities where you stack people deep, is <laughs> sure. not the the medical system sure. is not strained. In fact, um, even in King County, the temporary hospitals we built are all been dismantled. We're not going to need them. And and like where we live, you go to Pierce County, Thurston County, and everywhere south of there, we have hospitals have laid off staff, and they're sitting there empty because they're not allowed to do um, alternative or what do you call it? Uh, um, like non-emergency stuff. Non-essential surgery. So, so you have people out of work, hospitals laying staff off, and all these beds empty um, – in the name of public health, when in fact we don't have a public health crisis, but we're ruining the economy anyway. Yeah. Well, then the the, the rebuttal to that, and and you just devil's advocate is um, that preventative measures have have stopped us from becoming like New York. Absolutely. But you you got to wonder if um, there's just a certain threshold of density of population that you have to meet to become that bad and we just don't meet it and 99 percent of the country doesn't wouldn't meet that which speaks to the philosophy of governance is it a is it a good idea to let the government make sweeping laws that affect people like um there's uh they're gonna they're gonna i think one state said you can't go outside without a mask on so that means this farmer illinois i believe it is can't go outside without a mask on so a guy in Two Sticks, Illinois, who has no neighbor within 10 miles, and he's going to sure. go plow his farm, cannot plow his farm without a mask on. So, uh, you know, those are the, the, the dilemmas of massive policies to address a problem. I had this other question. This is not intended to be on this, on this uh, list of ethical issues. However, it hit me today. Whoever thought it was a good idea to stack people um, you know, let's put let's put ten thousand residents in a building that has a a uh, ground level footprint of two hundred by two hundred. <laughs> sure, <laughs> and let's do that eight thousand times in a six mile circle, and yes. let's just jam you know four million people in a ten mile circle. I don't know what it is. I'm just throwing stuff out. Well, There's that's, probably inherent dangers to to 
populating a, a space like that. Well, people, I guess, have said for a while that if any um, earthquake of consequence hit New York, it'd be a really, really, really bad day. Like, like. Oh, so to wrap that up, I think, you know, the point is that um, when you're talking about economic health and public health, there is a soft zone in the middle where decisions have to be made on impact risk reward again. And we've got our government making that decision for us. But that's sure. the ethical deal. So let's sure. switch to topic number three, John. And this is interesting. Um, is there a time when socially responsible civil disobedience is the right call? And um, holy cow, I'm not sure I know the answer to that. Do you? <laughs> uh, no, I don't. And and you look at um, other times of crisis where people, um, where social disobedience would have been the right call under like regimes or something like that. And I don't think we're there yet. Yeah. Um, Are there a set of factors that would guide your decision on when you believe it would be appropriate for you to be socially responsibly, civilly disobedient? Um, yeah, I think maybe if you could, uh, and, and this is just kind of off the top of my head, but if you could deem the, whatever you're rallying against as malicious, mm-hmm. uh, then maybe, cause right now I feel, I view, uh, even if you disagree with whatever the government's doing right now, I don't think you could call it malicious, even in your, uh, most, uh, biased of, of hearts. I think you could call it, um, you could call it foolish if you wanted to, maybe you reckless, just, maybe be, reckless, and, but, but yeah, but I wouldn't say it's with, with ill intent. Um, so, okay, so ill intent and, and malicious, and then also um, something that's so reckless now, it has become dangerous. Yeah, maybe. And and um, especially, you know, if they were to say um, in like a totally, you know, far uh, extreme example, um, uh, people of faith can no longer gather in ever again and you can't worship corporately. Um, I would say that's also a time to... Um, just keep doing your thing um, and trust in God and, and keep worshiping corporately. You know, that, yeah. I would say that's a time to, to break the rules. Yeah. You know, I was think I, I, I've got a current conviction, which um, I'm going to parenthetically say could change. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so uh, when I thought about uh, civil disobedience in the scriptures, because uh, obeying those who govern over you is um, a command of scripture. Mm-hmm. So when you see disobedience to governments, it's about persecution. It's about, um, which God you worship, false gods, you know, that kind of thing. So I started realizing, I think, because some of the some of the discussion in churches now is should we gather no matter what the government says because of our First Amendment right to do so, and we disagree with the government's decision to suspend the First Amendment. Mm. So uh, I have three reasons why churches um, should comply rather than disobey. And they are, first, this is not a worship issue. We are not being asked by our government to worship a God we don't believe in or a false God. The second is um, our faith is not being singled out for oppression. Um, So this is not about oppressing Christianity, at least not overtly. And then third, um, our mission is still doable in the current context. So we can still worship God. We can still worship God together virtually. We can still make disciples. We can still share the gospel. So our mission is not hindered. So what do you think of those as reasons why churches should not uh, socially responsibly, civilly disobey today? Yeah, I'm, I'm totally on board with that. And we talked about, we've talked about this a few times about uh, how this is an emergency situation in the same way 
where again you could disagree with this but in the same way if this was a uh, a hurricane and they said hey don't go to church there's a hurricane coming right that's that's different um and i think we with the fortune of being in america with the freedoms we have that any um whiff of 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 those freedoms being tightened a little bit um <laughs> is is scary and it doesn't feel right and uh and I, not not to say we're entitled about it or, or spoiled but um but that it that it, it freaks us out because we're not used to it maybe yeah, uh, in I think cases like this. I think you're making me have an aha right now, and that is that if I reached a place of civil disobedience, it would not be as a Christian; it would be as a patriot. Hmm. Um, that um, that our government was established on the concepts of freedom and liberty. Um, you know, I mentioned to you the other day. One of the ahas I've had is that the reason the U.S. Constitution is such an incredible document and our government structures are so beautifully designed is that they were crafted by people who did not trust government. Right. So they wrote the rules so that the people would be protected and the people would have freedom and liberty. And so if I was going to civilly disobey, it would not be because we can't go to church. It would be because my government has exceeded its boundaries based on the formation of our government. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Interesting. Okay, so we've got a new segment here called Show and Tell. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to try something a little crazy, and if this if this sucks, we'll stop doing it. But here's our idea, <laughs> is to have a show-and-tell segment where we get to show and tell you something, but you don't have any eyes to see it. It's all verbal. So, John, you're up. Show and tell today, episode number yeah. one of Show and Tell. John, what are you going to show and tell us about? So just kind of playing with our audio format. And can I show you? Is that part of it? Or yeah, you I can. Just... I, yeah. Okay. That way I can see, I can mock how well you are poorly you're doing this sure okay how about this i'll, <laughs> I'll describe it and then i'll show you what it is okay you can, you can all right me. all right uh so i had a tobacco pipe that i had bought oh. uh, going to college uh to just have something to chew on it was like 10 bucks on amazon <laughs> and i have and, to say uh, you really you you postured yourself physically the look on your face etc it looked like you believed your iq went up 50 points when that thing was in your mouth no way yeah it's <laughs> It's an esteemed item. <laughs> is that you what know, it's it like? Is? It's like wearing a peacoat. It's like how can you uh, not look uh, esteemed wearing a peacoat? Uh, okay, well, in your eyes. That, that, <laughs> so I do. I do remember noticing how smart you thought you looked with a pipe in your mouth. I just I had a lot of money at this time, and it just I just wanted one. So okay, so I keep walking this, us through this. Okay, I, I get this corn cob pipe, and uh, and I have it at Northwest in a drawer. Obviously, you're not allowed to have it. You can't smoke at Northwest unless. Um, I won't get anybody in trouble. But if you're an international student from a country like Indonesia, they will let you smoke cigarettes. Because no, so, they won't. So, they will. It's such a part of your culture that they, so many people in Indonesia are. Are, are you kidding are, me? I didn't dependent. know this. Yeah. yeah. Well, they, what if you're they, from Germany and beer is natural like water? Yeah, you'd think so, but no. That makes no sense. There's no, in, that's inconsistent, John. I don't ask me, man. Anyway, so uh, they do room searches and, uh, and, one of my roommates, so that so they do a scan, and they don't dig deep unless they find something of interest. So, basically, we're in story time now. I'll I'll try and cut this short. One of my roommates <laughs> left a left a vape pen, bunk, right on their desk, just sitting there. They knew we have we have like weeks notice that this search is coming. Right. And one of my roommates vapes has his uh, vape pen right on his desk, and uh, and so obviously they uh, they search the and they, they search the apartments. Open my desk. And they take my corncob pipe. But they, they leave his vape pen? No, they took his vape pen. They oh, took okay. a lot of things. Oh, okay. Yeah. They took a lot um, of things. Yeah. What else did you guys have in there? You got like roach well, clips? 
for me, it was only the the pipe. I had some uh, um, shot glasses. Shoot. No, it was uh, uh, um, some pills, some tablets. It was like some like uh, 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 like flu medication. It was Nyquil's. Pilled Nyquil's what it was, and they come in the they come in individualized capsules. You know, like like you have to and tear they them took off. It? Oh no, they had flipped it over to investigate it and left oh, it on my desk. Okay, which I thought was funny because it's uh, Nyquil. But this is really interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Anyway, so I had never smoked this. Uh, corncob pipe i had it for a few years you could clearly tell if you looked in it there was no it had never been used and there were teeth marks on the stem which you don't bite a pipe but because i'd have it in my mouth while i was writing this started because i chew pens right i, I was chewing pens mm-hmm. and this was my way to get over it was to use this pipe anyway they took my pipe and i didn't get in trouble for it uh uh eventually anyway my brother-in-law he hears about this and he finds it pretty funny he goes to africa <laughs> and he comes back with a pipe for me a hand carved pipe he said jokingly that it's from from a chieftain in Africa. I don't know where it's from exactly. Now wait, your brother in law, so Brian? No, Garrett, uh, Lindsay's brother. Oh, that side. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And um, he and he jokingly says it came from a chieftain in Africa. Yeah, he says like, a, a chieftain carved this and and gave it to me, <laughs> and I'm giving it to you. Uh, no idea where it's actually from, but it's a hand carved pipe. It looks crazy. It is so bizarre looking. Um, so is it all wood? It's a. Uh, it's all wood with a little metal piece joining the mouthpiece to the body. Um, it's got uh, um, the cup of it. So normally it's you have a cup and then a curved stem that kind of like loops around oh, yeah, and levels yeah. back up where the stem is is um, parallel with the top of the cup, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, or at least roughly. This one goes straight down. And then arcs up and then goes straight across. It's like a future. It looks like it looks like what a fifties person would say a pipe would look like in twenty seventy. You know, it's like like retro futuristic. Oh, looking. like uh, like ancient, ancient looking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's just like uh, it has these texture cuts all over it. Um, really, really crazy looking thing. Okay, hold it up uh, so I can see it because I want. Okay. You, yeah, you got me very interested. Oh, and it's dark. I was envisioning. Yeah. Kind of a teak or um, maple kind of finish. That's a very no, dark mahogany. Mahogany. Yeah. All these points for that. I should have said that. It's very dark. Um, and the normally uh, the cup will be separated from the stem by the piece. Yeah. This time the stem starts for quite a ways, and the the separation comes about halfway through. Yeah, the stem that's kind of cool. Goes on. That's uh, a beautiful device. Have you actually smoked anything in there? Uh, nope. Mm-mm. That's really beautiful, but and this one I don't chew on because I and you know, that yeah that came from a chief. You can't chew on something that came from an African chief. <laughs> I know. <laughs> anyway, and that's probably I should have saved it because if we're gonna keep doing the segment, that's probably the coolest thing I own. That is a really um, cool thing. Thanks for sharing that, and thus end this episode one of Show and Tell. Okay. We'll be, yeah, we'll be right back. Upstream is supported by the faithful members of the Upstream team, listeners who give monthly through Patreon. This podcast is just one part of the Jim and John ministry. They also write weekly blogs, have published their first book, and are currently at work on more. Their desire is to produce transformational content, as well as offer encouragement and coaching to others. The dream is to see a movement of people who are integrating the work of Jesus into their daily lives, and who are joining Him on His mission to redeem and restore all things. Check out their website at jimandjohn.com, where you can learn more about the father-son duo and gain access to all they have to offer. If you would like to join the Upstream team, consider partnering with Jim and John on patreon.com slash jimandjohn. A link is also available on the homepage of their website. And remember, there's no H in John. Now let's join Jim and John for the home stretch of today's conversation. Okay, welcome back. 
thank you for listening to our commercial. Thank you for listening to the whole episode. Episode one of our second year. Very exciting. And uh, again, feedback on show and tell would be uh, greatly preferred <laughs> or, or appreciated. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, so we got two things left. We got two things left. Uh, one our, ethical our last, issue. Yeah. And? And the, the query. that And that one, you know, this is... Uh, some episodes are my brainchild. This one's your brainchild. So, so I'll let you. I'll let you kick us off. On well, um, okay. So, uh, ethical dilemma number three, or actually number four, is uh, should I wear a mask in public, even if I don't have any fear at all or any conviction that I should? Should I wear a mask on behalf of those who are more fearful than myself? Yeah, and uh, and preface. I'm sure. Uh, a lot of this is common knowledge, but uh, um, the masks are for to stop you from spreading your contagion in case you have it and aren't aware. Correctly. Uh, Correct. So it's not not necessarily preventative. Um, it's not going to keep you from getting the virus. It's going to keep you from giving it. Right. Yeah. So uh, uh, to so me, it's a question, thoughtful thing. If you, to is that what you're saying that it's thoughtful? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's the the socially responsible thing to do. Um, uh, even if it is like, if you make one for yourself, it's a little less effective, but, um, to me, this is a similar question to the, um, we've talked about this a few times too. Um, the, uh, Paul not eating meat sacrifice to other gods, not because he feels it would be wrong, but because he doesn't want to cause friction with uh, his brothers in Christ. It's a similar thing where it's always, it's generally the better thing to do to not ruffle feathers Unless there is something immoral going on, right, right, um, and to and really it would be you're inconveniencing yourself on the behalf of your um, others. That's really not that's a a Christ-like thing. Okay, so think. you're saying that if I am perfectly physically healthy, I am certain I do not have the virus, as certain as I can possibly be, and I hate masks. I still should wear one out of conscientious care for my brother. I would say so, yeah, because the only, if you're, like, again, if you're doing some kind of equation, you pros and cons, the only con is that you are discomforted for the duration of the time that you're around that person, right? Yeah, so I ran into Chipotle today. Sue and I went in and grabbed some food to go. I'm jealous. And uh, I'm reaching for the door. A guy's coming behind me in the parking lot, and he has a mask on, and I do not. And so I'm wondering, I'm wondering if I'm going to make this guy uncomfortable because I don't have a mask on. Then I reach for the door. And open the door, and I decide to hold the door open for him. And uh, he grabs the same door handle I grabbed with an exposed hand as well. And so um, I thought, okay, so I'm not freaking the guy out because otherwise he wouldn't be touching door handles. <laughs> sure. But it does feel like this whole new set of ethical dilemmas for us. Um, yeah, I think it's just if the last one was convenience versus death, this one is inconvenience versus um whatever you're willing to do for your respect fellow man. or kindness respect. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and, and I think as Christians, we're called to have a pretty stacked equation in that way where you should be willing to convince yourself mm-hmm. quite a lot to an extent. I um, believe you're right. Paul says, I people. become all things to all people so that in yeah. any means possible, I might win some. Yeah. So certainly if you're not wearing a mask and you're offending a person who believes you should be, it's not a good time to share the gospel with them. No, probably not. <laughs> Okay, so last uh, thing is a, is a government philosophy, and this comes down to all of four of those d- dilemmas we just uh, talked about. The government has decided to decide for us, mm-hmm. and they have decided to make a matter of law the outcome of these items. So from a governance philosophy, do I want my government doing that, or would I rather my government 
educate me, communicate clearly, um, give me strong advice, but leave my decision-making to me. Sure. Um, I look at this kind of like um, uh, like seatbelt laws, you know, mm. a law that only affects yourself and not the, the um, safety of others. Great equation. Uh, What's your feeling right. about that? Um, it doesn't ruffle my feathers, uh, particularly because I would wear it either way. But as in a vacuum, I don't like it that much. Um, with the the extent of uh, maybe in in the case of helmets and seatbelts, you stop yourself from traumatizing other drivers if you bust your head open like a watermelon or fly out your windshield or something like that. That'd be pretty pretty terrible. Um, so, but but in this way, uh, if if they could just inform us, right, give us yeah. all the information we need, and then say you decide, yeah, um, we could still infect other people. So it crosses the threshold of just your safety into the safety of their other responsibility, mm. their other citizens. Mm. Um, so I, I get why they would see the need. I'm using lots of they, which I don't actually, I don't like that I do that. The people in power and in government would make executive calls like this because it is not just on your health. It is the health of the people. It is a highly contagious thing. There are, however, multitude more decisions that are, have that same parallel principle that they do not mandate for us. Like what? Like if you uh, have a cold, don't go to work or school. They don't, they don't make that a matter of law. Sure. Um, So, and there's probably dozens and dozens and dozens of those. So, um, so I'm not sure that holds water. There, there are some with with food workers. Um, if you if you uh, mm-hmm. vomit, you cannot go to work for another 24 hours from the time that you you puked. Um, stuff like that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and other food laws, you know, hygiene laws with food workers. But yeah, but you're right that if you if you work as an accountant, it's not illegal to go to work with the flu. Yeah. So I think you know we're in an election year. I would never tell anybody who they ought to vote for. It's not not my job. I think when you think about governance at the local level, and uh, now we have states that have a lot of autonomy on these issues, and uh, even the federal elections, these are the kind of principles that ought to guide your selection of who you vote for. Do I want government to make decisions for me, or do I want government to inform me and trust me to make my own decision? What does liberty look like? And I want my government to protect me. And how far do those protections go? This is the same kind of argument during a uh, um, a terrorist world. Mm. How many freedoms am I willing to surrender so that I can protect the country from terrorists? Yeah. Um, so those are very similar issues. And I think when we vote for people, we shouldn't vote for them based on how pretty they are, how much we like them. But actually, these kinds of principles of government that we have convictions about and and that can build a framework for how our government operates. Sure. And generally, um, I feel like I might have come across as more in favor of— You're a socialist, of, John. Yeah, That's exactly. Bottom line. <laughs> this this makes me a lot less mad than like a, a, a soda tax. Like, hey, our people oh, are too yeah. fat. Let's make them pay more money so they yeah, those are, might get less They fat. have sin taxes. Those have always been around. Uh-huh. More taxes yeah, I, on cigarettes and alcohol because those are— yeah. You know, and then you have uh, in California, you can't even buy a big gulp anymore because the government knows that you're going to make yourself sick and have diabetes. So they have to protect you from yourself. That to me is insulting. And uh, yeah, I have a lot of problems with that style of government. Uh, But I I feel pretty forgiving of of this situation because of the the massive unknowns. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I, 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 I hear you clucking big chicken. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I, I heard a statement to, uh, this week that I that you you made a little reference that made me remember it, and I think it's a great way to finish our episode as as well as to hear maybe one big takeaway from you. Um, here here it is. This would be my takeaway, even though we never discussed it at all in this episode. Okay. Um, there is excited. there is no us and them, and if anyone tells you it, there is, walk away from them. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like, like that. I like that a lot. Uh, there is no us and them. And if somebody tells you there is, walk away from them. Yeah. Um, it's just the whole thing is so uh, political now. It's no longer a health issue or a, a pandemic issue, at least in America. It is all political. It is all messaging. It is all agendas and platforms. And it's very stifling. Mm. And it's really easy for me to fall into an us and them thing. Now, and that's interesting. Yeah. It's just not, it's just not how the world really is the you know there is no us in them there's just just us what that saying has done for me is it's helped me like right now uh, our governor today laid out all of his charts these are the these are the five dials i'm watching and i need these dials to get to certain places before i'll change phases in the plan here's the four Mm -hmm. phases here's what they'll all look like i love that he finally got completely transparent on his whole plan yeah, that was nice. And I don't do, I don't agree with about a third of it, but <laughs> sure. I appreciate that he showed it and he showed us how he's making decisions. And I would say this idea, there is no us and them, helps me understand he is one of us trying to make the best decisions he can as a governor, skewed by his own biases as I am skewed by my own. And we're all just trying to figure out the right answers. And if we can stick to that, maybe we could actually cooperate more with people we would instinctively might call it an enemy. Right. And I, and, and empathy in that, and that, and as I started uh, um, with our first point about the, um, or maybe it wasn't our first point, actually it was, um, well, whatever uh, about, about uh, malicious intent and mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Um, these people aren't trying to, to, to take your business away. They're not trying to make your summer miserable. Um, they're doing their best for the people that they are frank, they're stewards over and, and, you know, Bible's frank that God has, placed them where they are um and uh and they're they're they feel differently than a lot of people do but they're uh yeah yeah awesome well hey thanks for listening to episode number 53 i'm really grateful i am too yeah um i if i don't know what there is to say it feels good feels good to to keep going i don't know i start a new new year yeah yeah i enjoy this i enjoy introducing a new segment we'll see how that goes but yeah, and if you have other segment ideas for us, we want to have some fun, and, and so we're wide open to some ideas. And so, um, yeah, thanks for listening. As always, we would love it if you would subscribe, tell a friend, share your favorite episode with a friend, and introduce them to the podcast. That'd be awesome. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. We'll see you for uh, episode 54 next week.